The following podcast is taken from a live broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Book Club Show on Inspire 105.1 FM. My name is Imrana and I am your host. And I hope that you have had um, a wonderful start to um, Ramadan, inshallah. I know it's always a time to make big and beautiful intentions. Hopefully, um, throughout this month and during the show will be an opportunity for you to really have um, time to see what time you have for reading, really, um, and how we're able to reconnect with our faith, because always this month um, is a really, really good opportunity if throughout the year we've been feeling maybe a little bit lost or um, kind of having this sense that, you know, we need to bring our back, bring bring our life kind of back on track um it's always a good way to do it during this month inshallah and no better way than having maybe a sense of what you would like to read or what um how you'd like to spend your time so i'm really really excited to have a wonderful guest on the show we have writer maria bin rahan and um she is an amazing amazing person um i did interview um maria i think sometime last year maybe and she's written some really interesting insightful thoughtful pieces of work Um, And I always take much, much benefit from. So inshallah, we are going to talk a little bit about um, to Mari about um, how her Ramadan is going, what kind of intentions um, will we both have actually. So I'll be sharing as well. And then we'll talk a little bit um, as well about some of the articles that um, and and blogs that Mari has written as well. But I'm firstly going to say assalamu alaikum, Maria. That was a really lovely introduction and very and likewise to you as well. Jazakallah for everything. And I'm always very inspired by everything you're doing equally. Thank you. Jazakallah. That's very, very thoughtful and very kind for you to say. But today's show is definitely going to be about you. So I guess my first question really is if we're just starting um, kind of uh, because, you know, for Ramadan, um, how do you prepare for the month? Okay, so I was gonna. I've got a bit of a confession here in that I'm, in terms of preparation, I am what some people could call quite lazy. In as far as I don't do much in terms of physical prep, so Mm. my feed is just absolutely full of like all this food that people are preparing, Mm. and even even in the sense of like your physical sort of um, your physical worship, you know, getting ready to kind of like increasing Mm. your capacity for Quran and increasing you know your dhikr and, and things like that, and really unfortunately for me. In the run-up to Ramadan, I don't do much of that. But what I do do, mm. and what is one of the things I love about uh, the run-up to Ramadan, Ramadan itself, is I do really, really try to kind of spiritually realign myself mm. um, in a, in the sense that I think when you're a mum and, and you know how much your time is going to be consumed by doing things for the kids and, you know, just generally household stuff, um, I think it's a really, really good time to renew your intentions and to really kind of contextualise what you're doing everything for um and, and that's what i love about ramadan it's like it's such a special time of year it's the time of year where you really acutely feel uh like allah's presence in your life mm-hmm. um and i and i love that the run-up to ramadan is for me all about that it's all about understanding that you know allah's made me human with the limitations that i have with the limited hours that i have with the limited capacity that i have but that doesn't mean that what i'm doing isn't worship you know, like the fact that I'm I'm having to fill my time with all the things I do as a mum, I'm really, really re sort of regrounding myself and really sort of reorienting myself and understanding that I do I'm doing all that for the sake of him and him alone, um, and and I think that's what that's that's what I really use the run up to Ramadan for, yeah. like really kind of recentering myself, really really understanding, um, what I'm my purpose, what I'm here for, um, and how everything I do in that month is ultimately for him, even if that isn't you know, in the formal acts of worship, it's that intention and that kind of preparation, preparing myself mentally and, and spiritually for that. Mm. Yeah, I know that's really kind of a lot, actually, that you've said, which is so fantastic, because I really like what you said about this idea of realignment and, and reorientation. And I know, you know, it, it, there's a lot of way, I guess, thinking about um, our Iman, and obviously it will always fluctuate, but it's also this idea that, um it's kind of like a circle and you know you always are able to come back to Allah and you know there's never there's never a time no matter how I guess far gone that we might feel you know th- this idea of yeah of always having I guess the year to to really yeah I guess you know like reflect and like you said realign with with faith um so you kind of spoke um you mentioned something about purpose so I guess are there any um I know you've said that 
I mean, you labelled yourself as perhaps being a bit lazy, which I don't believe even for a second. However, (laughs) you're saying about purpose. So are there any particular intentions that you make for the month then? Um, And that could be in in any way, whether that's spiritually or, you know, if you set a certain target or, you know, yeah, I was just wondering what that might be. Yeah, so like, it's like what you said about, um, you know, different stages of your life. And I think it's interesting because when I look back at every Ramadan and, you know, there's that famous hadith about, or there's that famous sort of um, adage in Islam where, like, we pray to reach the next Ramadan. Mm. And as you grow older, you sort of, I kind of milestone my life according to Ramadan. So that Ramadan was the, the first Ramadan I was pregnant. That mm. Ramadan was the first Ramadan I had a child. And that was the first. And so with each with each year, my intentions and my sort of um, what I prioritise is, is different. Mm. And so, you know, so when I was pregnant with my first child, um, I it was when I first started practicing as Muslim. I first started becoming a conscious Muslim, mm. um, and I had this voracious appetite for learning. And I just wanted to absorb all this information. I was just absolutely in this phase of my life where I was just learning how to be. Like I think there gets a point in your life where, when you're born Muslim, in, in particular, where you realise that Islam isn't a passive identity; it's an active endeavour. Mm. Um, and that was really like my turning point. So that year, my intentions were all about. I just wanted to do as much, like physically, uh, go to the go to the masjid. I mean, at the time, I didn't have kids. Obviously, I was pregnant with my first mm. child, so I had the physical ability to do that as well. Um, and I think now I'm at a stage in my life where I feel like my faith is being tested in different ways. And it's weird because, you know, when you're in a certain point in your life, you look to the horizon and you kind of I always assume I'm going to be in a constant. So I always assume, okay, this year I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z. So, th- you know, Ramadan will always be X, Y, and Z to me. But subhanAllah, it's amazing how each Ramadan has evolved and changed and how each time I'm pulling on different parts of myself. Because I feel like that's what Ramadan's about, right? It's about really getting the best of yourself. Mm. Yeah. Like really sorting through all of that sort of, all the minerals within you that are kind of pulling you down spiritually and making you kind of less, like the the less better version of yourself and so for, i feel like this ramadan is the first or the first ramadan one of the first ramadans where i feel like i'm i'm actually feel like i i'm now part of a muslim community like i see muslims often and regularly mm-hmm. and so it's before um certain like outward elements of my face like my hijab would have been a test i.e wearing a hijab might be a test now i feel like i'm at a stage where like taking for me it's easier to keep my hijab on mm-hmm. than it would be to say like so i feel like my faith is being tested in a different way. I'm I'm kind of learning to repurpose and re-understand and to reorient myself and re-understand why I'm wearing hijab because, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the social aspect of it is like locked down now. And mm-hmm. now I'm like, okay, no, I have to rediscover hijab. I have to rediscover being a Muslim. I have to rediscover why I'm doing what I'm doing because mm-hmm. I've created a lifestyle for myself. It's embedded in my lifestyle. It's now about seeing that in a new light and mm-hmm. sort of repurposing it and re-understanding it and re like appreciating it in a different way, I suppose. So I think that's what it's about. Like this year uh, is all about sort of, and even like, as you go older, I think, I feel like you tend to kind of, as you get more, as you start to establish yourself more, I feel like you get tested in different ways as well. So that there are smaller things that I want to kind of refine in my behavior and my attitude and my approach to life that I think that come with age as well. So that I'm very conscious of all these sort of finer tuned things in my character and I think that's what being a Muslim is about and that's what I love about Islam it's because you know you know the idea of Allah as omniscient we really do center that in our life so it is really about interrogating yourself from the inside out and Ramadan is very much about that for me it's about getting rid of like the smaller internal habits actually when you look at them they do impact your actions and your intentions in such a vast way like you wouldn't think it but the smaller things that are part of your character really do impact and impress on your physical being in such a way and your actions and and your your day-to-day life so for me it's very much about that this year I'm really trying to kind of sort out my inner demons and kind of better myself in, in lots of different ways inshallah yeah, no, inshallah. No, thank you for sharing. And, you know, it, it's one of those things that there is beauty in not seeing faith as something stagnant, right? Because, you know, we're, we're you know, we're always changing, like seasons change, we're changing. And, um, you know, what you said something there about kind of, it's an active endeavor. I mean, I really, really like that. And totally echo, I think what you're saying about um, specifically kind of being a visibly Muslim woman and what does hijab mean? And, and actually how much that's changed, like from me wearing it mm. since, you know, I was kind of older teenager to, to now and that whole journey. And I think, yeah, it's really, really healthy to actually be able to have those constant kind of questions and, and, and kind of reflections. So 
And and I guess my next question really is that obviously you're you're a writer. You know, how does that play into then? Um, like, do you do much writing during Ramadan, or how does that help you kind of reflect on your own faith as well? I guess. I think as a writer, I, like I remember early on in my like writing career, I, I guess you could call it. I was uh, there was I remember someone asking this, posing this question to me about whether you write for yourself or other people. Um, and I remember at the time feeling really. Like, I think I've evolved. Like, initially, I was writing for myself. And then I, no, sorry, initially, I felt I was writing for other people because I felt I had a point as a minoritized uh, person to kind of, to really um, assert myself and to kind of, to make those points that may not be so publicly available because they are from a minoritized perspective, to make those normalize them and to kind of, to give them some sort of shape and some meaning and some sort of weight in public life. Um, And then it kind of evolved to know it's really a good way to refine my thoughts, right? But I think writing, like, as I, as I stand here today, when it comes to writing, it's not something that I would, that I spend time on during Ramadan. Because for me, Ramadan is really about, like, internal, and like, reflecting myself internally and perfecting myself internally. And I think your, our lives are so busy. It's so full of, like, outwards, uh, you know, ex outwards displays of, you know, everything. And I feel like... That's one thing I want to run down is one time. I just want to be by myself with myself spiritually. And I know that that's not always easy. Like I said, when you're a mom and when you've got other sort of social responsibilities. So I think writing is one thing I definitely put on the back burner. It's like one of those things that I, I, I really do just want to focus on being the best of me. And I think inshallah that does impact your writing after Ramadan because you come out a better version of yourself with better intentions and a clearer idea of your purpose and your sense of, direction and what you want to do with you know with your words and with um with with what you put out there in the world so unfortunately for me and I know loads of people journal and I know writing is like writing is such a versatile tool so I know that there are loads of writers out there that probably use it to the best of their ability during the month of Ramadan but for me it's very much like I need to sort myself out like sort your own house out first kind of Mm -hmm. thing yeah yeah and I think it's really um I think it's something important, isn't it? Just being able to kind of take stock and and actually, you know, writing, it's a different outlet depending on, I guess, where you are as an individual. And, you know, in Ramadan, obviously, you can take mm. you many, many forms. Um, and so how about, um, obviously, the, the writing, I guess, is one aspect. And and how about reading? So do you, are you able to have time um, to read during Ramadan? Or is there a particular routine that maybe you have a bit of reading, a bit of writing and, you know, all the other stuff? Because obviously you're, um, obviously you've got your career but then you're also you know a mother I mean how, how are you juggling all those things so with reading um, and I feel like so when I was kind of reflecting just before we were having but before we were due to have this lovely conversation I was reflecting on kind of my reading habits and my my general sort of Ramadan and I realized it's ve- I think I'm very um, very typical of a kind of and I feel like I'm representing here like a, a North London Muslim because I feel like with you know what, if you grow up in a Muslim community, so if you're brought up in maybe sort of like northwest or east or south London, where you have like these lovely, rich and vibrant Muslim communities, Allah Mubarak, you, you, I think Ramadan and generally your faith has, a, it plays a different role in your life. Um, but coming, as someone who didn't grow up in a Muslim community or any community of any sort, mm-hmm. I kind of started to, I discovered my faith a little later on in life. So that idea of it being an active endeavour came when I was a lot older. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of, in terms of studying my religion, I brought, I, I didn't look at it through a cultural lens. And I know that I read this really interesting article on, on Amali the other day about how someone, how someone's culture, like their, mm-hmm. and by culture, I, I do mean like their ethnic culture. So like their home culture, how that helped them to uh, rediscover their faith. And it was such a lovely perspective because for, mm-hmm. for me, it's always been the opposite. It's always been like, I've always seen religion as very separate to my culture, mm-hmm. um, as in my home religion, uh, sorry, my home culture, like my, Pakistani South Asian culture has been very separate to how I view religion and if anything I think I, I draw more on my kind of British side of my culture in the way that I um, look at religion and the way that I um, the way that I read about religion in particular so I do take a more kind of forensic rigorous sort of scientific approach mm. and, 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 and in saying that I don't think that's I don't think South Asian like a South Asian approach should be approached to reading or rediscovering your faith through reading would be less rigorous or less scientific. But I know that definitely where I get that side is my British, it's the British side of my culture. So in terms of reading, um, 
and how much time I put aside for reading, I do very much go back to the basics. So I do very much go through my tafsir. So every Ramadan I do the Ibn Kathir um, tafsir and every Ramadan I do a different I do a different surah. I, I focus on something different. So I think last Ramadan, I or the Ramadan before that, I tried to do just Amma because I was memorizing at the time. And I just thought in terms of your khushu for your salah, to be able to understand the context of each uh, surah when you're reciting it, to me was phenomenal. Like it really, it was a game changer. It changed my uh, relationship with salah, which I think is obviously so integral to your your um, religious identity and your religious sense of, of being. Um, and so I think this year, I haven't actually decided what to see I'm going to focus on. I did Fatiha last year um, and I did a bit of Surah Bakra last year. And I think this year, I haven't decided what, but I do know I'm going to go return to my Tafsir and I'm going to. Mm. And the, the thing I love about Tafsir is I think I think it um, and why I would encourage everyone to kind of rediscover Ibn Kathir or, you know, go back to that that part of your bookshelf that you, you maybe just kind of left up there for decoration for so long. is because I feel for me in particular, it really kind of brings home the kind of transcendental side of Islam and the divine sense of it. So the Quran is the word of Allah, right? Mm. But it's revealed through the Prophet who is human and it's and it's sent to shape our very human and material existence. And I think tafsir as a, and hadith as a science really brings that home to me. Mm. It's this idea that, okay, it's these beautiful words that were sent by our creator who knows us, for, you know, to, to direct and to shape our purpose. But they're, they're made for us as humans, as such flawed beings. And that's what I love about Tafsir. I love the fact that you have the human imprint of the Prophet and how he received these surahs. Mm. But you have that beautiful sort of message in it. And that's that's my kind of, that is why I'm always rooting for Tafsir at Ramadan. And and actually, I, it's something I do with my kids quite a lot. And it's something I'd encourage every parent to do with their child. Because I feel like it really broadens your relationship with the Quran. And it really contextualizes it in such a way that I feel like nothing else could. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I think, you know, um, and it's important what you said, because sometimes we have those books sitting on our shelf for quite a while and they're getting dusty and and actually you know how much of that you know there's a wealth of knowledge and wealth of wisdom and um and again you know so beautiful that you you, you then maybe share that with you know your children and um you know I think it's really interesting what you said in terms of also that kind of the cultural impact or kind of influence I guess on on faith or on Islam I mean I guess personally my then in that case, experience is probably quite different to yours. I mean, definitely culture was always, you know, a big part of it or, you know, um, and also, I mean, we lived for quite a while, you know, in like three, a three generation household and my, um, my late grandfather, um, paternal grandfather, you know, um, he was, it was such a blessing to have had him in the home because the way he was then able to share stories with us or um, the way he, you know, uh, I guess kind of advised on practice and you know all these things I guess you take from so many different um dif- so many different people but again you know in mm. terms of reading there's a lot of um and the see absolutely I and mean, there's so much and and I guess it's about contextualizing those stories because otherwise they just become stories don't they or, or they just become like ayahs that we know okay that this something happened but it's about delving much much deeper into it um mm-hmm. I mean is there a particular I mean without putting you on the spot I mean is there a particular surah or ayah that really uh, not necessarily your favorite but something you can think of now that is um something you can come back to has an impact on you yeah absolutely and I, I love what you said Marshall about uh your grandfather and I think that's so true like I, I definitely do see ele- like elements like my grandfather with himself was like he was probably the one figure in my life that was a kind of the religious Muslim in my life like mm. uh, at, dif- at different parts of my my upbringing we had different sort of um stages of like religious commitment and mm. understandings and interpretations of Islam um but he was a kind of the constant in that regard so I totally relate to that subhanAllah and may Allah uh, have mercy on both of them and bless them both mm. um but in terms of what you were saying about um what what verse so it's, it's interesting because I've, I've done a kid's tafsir on um surah uh, asr mm. and I did it because my kids just love this story and and again this is like I suppose this, in a way, kind of conveys the breadth and the depth of Tafsir and the whole science of understanding the Quran and like the material and the sort of um, the transcendental aspects of it as well. It, it, there's, there's a, there's, there's a, you know, I really should know the name of the Sahaba, but I don't, and I'm ashamed of that. But um, 
I've got a link on my website, actually, if, if anyone is wanting to do tafsir with their children over Ramadan, I think I've got one video and a couple of resources. So you, there's, there's the option to kind of put them in front of the video if you want to do that. And there's an option to explore it yourself with your child. Um, but the, the references and everything are in that video. And it's like there was one Sahaba and he, he discovered that Islam was a true religion through the Surah Walasr. And that was because there was um, there's a there was a um, uh, there was. A person that was that was basically a false prophet called Masailama, um, and he had heard that Walasa had been revealed, and he had asked this Sahaba, "Oh, you know, what's the Prophet Muhammad saying?" Mm-hmm. And the Sahaba had said, who at the time was a Muslim, he recited the uh, verses of Walasa, mm-hmm. and then Masailama felt under great pressure, having received this revelation that he should now say okay i've been I, some revelation came to me mm-hmm. and he comes up with this verse about a wabar which is like an animal mm-hmm. um and it's really funny because it's like a really human moment as well which is what i love about it and the harbor looked at him he said both you and i know that you're lying <laughs> um and my kids love that because they find it so funny they find the wabar thing hilarious mm-hmm. and they find yeah. the fact that you know he was kind of comedically just put to an end right there really quite funny as well mm-hmm. but also i think it's the you know the beauty of us well Asura, like that that surah is such a beautiful surah mm-hmm. it's such a succinct um and stunning surah and i think i love that that to see of that surah encompasses all of it right so it gives you the context it gives you the human element and it gives you the sheer beauty of allah's words um so yeah that's definitely to see i think if you ask my kids that's definitely their favorite um in terms of my favorite i think when I did Surah Fatiha last year, I can't remember the word. And again, and this is the other reason I keep revisiting things because, you know, Insan forgets, right? Like, um, and so I, so I do revisit, but there was this one word in um, Surah Fatiha and there was an explanation of why that word is in Surah Fatiha. And it really struck me because it made me realize, you know, we repeat these words five times a day like more than five times a day as we do our salah and the magnitude and the weight of them we don't always reflect upon them and we don't always know it so i've done the tafsir of surah fatiha countless times uh, in my journey uh of, as a muslim mm. and revisiting it again at 35 i was like subhanallah that it struck me then and it and that word and now you know when i when i do or after that when i did salah it, it held extra weight and it held extra significance and that's the other reason that i love to so much Mm. yeah no and it's so nice to be able to kind of um take that from you because it's there is so much in terms of the stories that we read and what you said about you know some words holding weight and and definitely I I think I recognize the days that I've looked at the fseer and I've really um kind of spent more time thinking about it my salah really does transform you know Mm. I mean I guess in some ways because that's the other thing because this part of our salah maybe outside Ramadan talking personally things become a bit more ritualistic it's like okay it's time for prayer let me do wudu let me do Ramadan you know and then I'm kind of sometimes I think going through emotions but I know on the days that I've really I'm making a concise effort to be really present and 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 think about the individual words you know as much as the ones that I understand or you know that I, in terms of translation um yeah I you know that you find that I guess sweetness in salah which is so I guess important um and just as uh, you did mention um the the book that you have the resources so just while so I don't forget <laughs> later what what's the name of the book and, and if you can just mention the website so our listeners can um access oh that. yeah absolutely so well my my I've so I've written a children's picture book called the best of our mm-hmm. um and and that's a great Eid present, I should add. Yes. <laughs> and you can get that on my and and all my resources and and a lot of my writing actually is on my website. So it's www.muswellbooks.com. Fantastic. Thank and you. and I plug that mainly because genuinely I truly truly believe like if you do to see as a family, it's tr- mm. transformational. Like my kids look forward to Ramadan because in the evenings. Like, well, I mean, we, I used to do bedtime stories and they're slightly older now, so we don't do bedtime stories anymore. But in Ramadan, I make the effort to sit and do just a couple of lines of tasir with them before they go to sleep. Mm-hmm. And it's like, and that's what makes Ramadan so special to them and their evolving sense of like what Ramadan means to them in their life. Because then they have that, you know, that it makes those nights so special to them. And I, and I really like that. And I really value that. So I do wholeheartedly, and they're all free resources. I'm not trying to sell anything. Wholeheartedly recommend it you take the time to do that with your kid and generally anyway any islamic learning you do i think it's so lovely to share that with your child because mm. they get they get the sense of islam being that kind of active thing where you're constantly like we said constantly refining yourself and constantly kind of renewing your relationship with allah and that's that's what we are as believers right you never give up it's that constant endeavor and i think modeling that to your child through your learning of islam is such a beautiful way and key way to do that 
Yeah, 100%. And, you know, and just to kind of um, echo what you're saying in terms of the books, obviously, we have that book on our, um, I say our bookshelf, it's on the children's bookshelf, even though I'd like it oh. to be on mine. But, um, oh. but yeah, and obviously, I remember how excited they were when, um, uh, like, obviously, I'd received, <laughs> I'd received it was mine, right? But, um, <laughs> you know, the fact that it's just such it's a cute little book and the illustrations and everything about it you know is just so so lovely and I I think you're right and this idea of collective collective reading and having that moment as a family you know together maybe well it we usually like you maybe like yourself we do it at bedtime obviously it could be any part of the day but I think mm-hmm. yeah and obviously I think that comes back to idea of making an intention that you can have that part of a routine for Ramadan and not in like a oh like I'm pressurizing myself there needs to be a routine but as in you know just introducing something that maybe if you ha- if you haven't tried it before as a family um that's always quite nice and I know my children really appreciate even now that they're older they still like either reading out aloud to me or they like me reading out aloud to them and you know kind of sharing that moment so definitely so that's um the the, the best for our book um so we are approaching um the end of the first um half of the book club show and i am speaking to writer maria bin rahan and we've just been talking a little bit obviously about ramadan about intentions um and the impact obviously um that all of the thinking reflection has on the holy month um and we're going to continue we're going to talk to um maria about some of her own work in the second half of the show so join us in a few moments assalamu alaikum you're listening to an inspire fm podcast making available our popular programs from our daily broadcast on Inspire FM. Assalamu alaikum and welcome back to the book club show on Inspire 105.1 FM. My name is Imrana Mahmood and on today's show I am joined by writer Maria bin Rehan. And in the first half we were talking a lot about um, our intentions for Ramadan, um, how we manage to reconnect and realign with our faith. Um, and we'll talk a little bit about um, some reading habits and what the routine can potentially look like during Ramadan as well. Um, hopefully by the end of the show you're going to have... Um, maybe some ideas of how or the intentions that you could potentially make, how it might be a wholesome, holistic way of spending the month. And of course, it will always be different um, for everybody, depending on our circumstances, but hopefully just um, some ideas. But now in the second half, I'm going to be speaking to Maria about some of her own work that she's written. Um, And we're going to start off with one of her most recent um, pieces, which is called a cool girl's guide to being a Muslim mum. Now, I had the pleasure of reading it and I want to read it again and again. I think it is one of those things that each bit that, you know, there were different parts that I thought, oh God, you know, I really, this means, I know exactly what this means. Or there was another bit which actually made me laugh out loud a little bit. Um, So yeah, it's always wonderful um, reading um, Maria's work. But yes, so I guess my first question, Maria, really is what prompted you to write a cool girl's guide to being a Muslim mum? Thank you for that. But so basically how it came about was I, there was a lot of, there's always, so I'm, I'm very much a Twitter girl. I should put that out there. I'm not going to turn this into confessional, but I am very much, uh, I have, I have a, I have a massive affection for Twitter and what it, like the way it is as a platform or what it is as like a social media app or whatever, however you want to, to word mm-hmm. it. Um, because I think it brings so many voices together and it's just so, it's really, it's a really good temperature gauge. I think you get to know what people are thinking and what people are feeling uh, in such an instant way. And there's this perennial topic of debate on Muslim Twitter, which is motherhood. Mm-hmm. This constant thing about, oh, yeah. I, you know, I've got nothing to do with motherhood. I never want to be a mother. Oh, it's the best thing. It's what defines me as a woman. And it's like, I feel like motherhood gets lost amongst all of that and more. That is that is the kind of white noise that exists around motherhood and particularly Muslim mothers. And I think obviously the political weight of that alone is, is something, but generally as well, just the idea that, we attach so much to motherhood and so little at the same time. And it is such a contradictory thing. And it's such a contested um, notion that I just thought, you know, for those young girls who are like maybe starting out family or maybe, you know, are in, you know, just have just had a child and they've got all this kind of confusing white noise about what it means to be a Muslim mum and all the significance that holds. I thought I just wanted to put something very simple and very concise together about, you know, motherhood doesn't define you as a woman obviously for obvious reasons and it's not the defining trait of a muslim woman but much like everything that is 
that is to do with being a Muslim. It's very much about your circumstances and the position that you're in and how you utilize that to be the best believer. Um, and this guide is just a guide on how, as a modern day British Muslim woman, you know, all those things that are kind of that, you know, you might feel the pressure to kind of conform to or to kind of submit to how just to kind of navigate that as a young Muslim mum. And as someone who's now got my daughter, my oldest is turning 10 towards the end of this year, which is still quite difficult to put to say out loud. Um, I felt like, I don't know, I've got a little bit more experience under my belt now. And I felt the need to kind of just extend a kind of rope to kind of young Muslim mums who are out there and just be like, it's okay, you've got this. And it's just a little sort of guide. And usually when I publish things, I do it on a platform. And with this piece, I kind of decided to kind of just do it as a standalone sort of, uh, I don't know, a little guide. So it kind of sits on its on its own. Actually, actually, I need to upload that onto the website. That's a good reminder to myself. Mm-hmm. But it kind of sits on its own. It's not um, it's not affiliated. I haven't put it on any sort of platform at the moment, mm-hmm. uh, just so that people can kind of access it on its own, in its own sort of um, category. Um, and it's just something I thought I'd share with young mums, basically. Yeah, and it's so interesting. And absolutely, I think it would be so bring so much value to young mums. But um, myself as maybe not so much of a young mum. I mean, I it was brilliant for me, because, you know, sometimes there's, and actually, I think in some ways, you kind of reflect on that within the piece, because there's a sense, we are seeking for a particular type of validation, or some sort of recognition, and how I our identity changes, like before, motherhood and and after but I think for me when reading it it just gave me that sense of you know um that there's someone else out there who who kind of understands you know (laughs) what what Mm. motherhood means and what the ins and outs and the every days of that kind of look like and Mm. um and I think you know and, and to be honest even aesthetically looking at it it's just so nice because I love all the kind of the, the the flowers and just generally just looking at it it was so nice but I guess oh, my, my next question was um so under I'm just going to read a really little bit um which comes under um the section which is a secular gaze which I found quite interesting um so the, there's a bit that says so the great thing about being a Muslim mum is how motherhood complements and bolsters your faith and how your faith complements and bolsters your ability to mother it's one of the most real human experiences one that will take you right down to the bone of what it means to exist and what we are all here for that kind of realness in a superficial world has such great potential. And we've been given the exact tools as Muslims to make the absolute best of it and the room to do that in a way that is true and forgiving to ourselves. So just for our listeners, this is the type of thing that I'm saying, right? Because within that one paragraph, I'm like, oh my God, there's so much you know, in there that you've captured. And I guess my, my first thing really is that just the ending where you're talking about um, being true and forgiving ourselves. What what does that look like? Like what what is the sense of that um, when we talk about forgiveness, but for for our own selves as as mothers? So I think it's like you know. So the way that I said it is, you've got this idea of what a Muslim mom should be like. So she should be entirely self-sacrificing and you know not have any sort of. And you know it's, it's interesting because I think I don't know if I've included that in there, but I did want to write this whole thing about self-sacrifice because mm. I feel like it's a bit of a misnomer because mm. when you're when you're compromising for your children you're not compromising you're learning a skill so there isn't really a like obviously I and I think obviously this is all contextual naturally because there are some women who aren't even given the space to do that and it is a case of you know their health is impaired and everything but in a general sense I think that those things that you sacrifice for your child they teach you they give you a sort of temperance and a sort of um, resilience and a sort of selflessness and, and and an ability to kind of look beyond yourself that I don't actually think it doesn't really amount to sacrifice in the end it's a skill and it's a enrichment that that it gives us Mm. and so there was that element of like when I say be forgiving to yourself I mean that in the sense that you will get this idea of as a Muslim mum you should be this way as a a mum in general you should be this way and I think we have to really sort the wheat from the chaff amongst all that noise and really look at what it means to be a Muslim mum and to do that from a position of compassion and mercy and not punishment not don't don't punish yourself if you don't meet that milestone you know subhanallah and that's the beauty of islam like it's so it's so universal and so flexible at the same time and by flexible i don't mean that it doesn't adhere to certain you know um scholarly sort of uh or you know strict principles what i mean by that is that you know in islam we have gender essentialist views so you know as a woman you know you are as a woman your 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 role is given a certain weight and you have that because of your identity as a woman but there is forgiveness in that as well so you have examples uh within the sahaba of women who have been great warriors for example or have done certain things that that wouldn't necessarily fit within the stereotypical confinements of what it means culturally in today's day and age and so we're given i think islam gives us that room and that flexibility to understand where we are as women but to not punish ourselves if we don't 
quite live up to certain social and cultural benchmarks. Um, and I, I've always found that Islam has given me the greatest room to breathe as a mum more than anything else has, more than cultural religious expectations have, more than social expectations have, more than like anyone else has. And I think that's what I kind of wanted to have my home. Like, you know, like it is being a mum will literally get you contemplating on what it means to be a human being, what it means mm. to, to be breathing and to, to be a life, to be a soul, to be all of that. And, you know, Islam subhanAllah has given us the blueprint to do that in the best way. And I feel like motherhood has really, really refined my relationship with my religion. And my religion has really refined me as a mother. And I think that's the other reason I wanted to write this, because I feel like sometimes it's very, like, you know, the discourse can be very negative about motherhood. And it's not easy. It certainly isn't. It's tested me more than anything has ever tested me in my life. But there is so much barakah in it, and there's so much joy in it, and there's so much beauty in it that Allah has blessed us with. Not that society has, like, we haven't got that from any other right or any other, you know. And, and I think it's just recognising that, I suppose, as a Muslim woman. Yeah, alhamdulillah, absolutely. And I think it's, you know, you talking a little bit there about, um, I mean, it's one of those things that I think freedom and liberty, yeah, that Islam's given me, I think, in terms of how I view motherhood is is something, yeah, I don't think I've really thought about or, or received from anywhere else. And mm. and also, you know, I think what's really interesting is the way I used to view myself be before I became a mother to now mm. and actually thinking, oh, okay, maybe I'm not as perfect as I thought, you know, because oh, okay. I think as a younger person, like I, you you know, I thought, oh, yeah, I'm such a patient person. Like, obviously, we're talking about the ego here, right? And mm. then um, suddenly discovering, you know, what you're talking about compromise. I think it's so nice what you said in it being a skill, because yes, absolutely, because you are having to really um, control the ego, which would naturally come into it. And actually, mm. because you're also being an educator, you know, as a mother, you're being an educator, but also not. And I think there's a sense of, yes, you're educating your children, but by the same token, you're doing it for yourself as well. Mm. Um, and yeah, and again, you know, having that sense of mercy and compassion on on ourselves, because, yeah, I mean, it's it's not easy. There's a reason that, you know, um, heaven you know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala said that heaven lies at the feet of the of the mother because there is a weight there and you know which you mentioned um now just coming back to what you were saying a little bit about this idea of like white noise and mm. I'm and you know funny the fact that you say you know you're a bit of a twitter girl which I think maybe I am a little bit as well I guess oh, I'm wondering what is it about social media and this kind of white noise that is then impacting the sense of what motherhood means and and how that might be um affecting your individual kind of Muslim mums? So I think it's like, it's like with anything, I think generally, I think we, we unfortunately we get our own, so I'm, I, I'm like a strong believer in the sense that I think you have like, you have like traditional cultural Islam and, and that means different things to different people. So depending on what culture you've been brought up in, you, that will impress its version on Islam. And I think some of that isn't always, isn't always, um, what's the word, what's, what's the best way to write this? Isn't always, um, in line with Islam. So for example, misogyny, we know misogyny doesn't exist in Islam. Yet we come from, you know, a patriarchal world, I would say, I don't think there is any culture out there. I think they, I remember reading one study about a non patriarchal society out there somewhere. But generally speaking, we come from a patriarchal world, right. And so we will impress the misogynistic ideas into our cultural impressions of Islam. Um, and then you have people that will kind of react to that false impression of Islam, by asserting something else. And neither of those things are Islam, not the cultural not the cultural impression and not the reactionary response to it. And I think the truth is the same with motherhood. So you've got this cultural idea of what motherhood and being a Muslim mother should be. Um, and then you've got the reaction to it. Like, oh no, knee jerk sort of, I'm just going to do the opposite of what you've said because, you know, and, and I think neither of those are truly, truly honour the role of motherhood in society and as a Muslim in like in a, in a, in within a kind of religious paradigm. And I think, that that was what I meant about white noise and social media. And I think, you know, you've got so many things propping up here and there about, you know, what Muslim women should be. And a lot of those are so cultural. And then you've got a lot of the response to that, which is like, and again, you know, it's interesting when we use the term cultural, we talk about cultural as though cultural consists of just minority culture when it doesn't. Cultural can be Western. It can be liberal. So those kind of liberal Western sort of, that liberal Western culture has its impression of Islam and the kind of, I don't know, um, global south i don't know how 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 could we term it whatever else can, constitutes the minoritized community cultural sort of impressions of islam and i think it's about unpicking the true role of motherhood in islam and being a woman in islam outside of that so it not being that sort of binary reactionary thing and i think social media 
because of its nature, because it's very binary by nature, and because it's, it's literally in, in the terms of its cogs and how it's constituted, it has a binary nature. It promotes that sort of binary thinking and it kind of bolsters those binary views. Um, and I think oftentimes we get caught in the crosshairs of that. And we and obviously we all know about echo chambers and we all know about, you know, um, going down that kind of rabbit hole um, of ideology where you're just stuck in one way of thinking. And I think social media does a really bad job, I think, of um, of creating nuance where, where they should be. Yeah, absolutely. And and it also kind of, um, I think, triggers like, you know, th- those that kind of reactive, impulsive kind of thoughts. And obviously, we know the idea yeah. of keyboard warriors and, and all of this. And of course, it loses nuance. And there's so much that's going on. So, you know, I think the idea of white noise, you know, really does kind of encapsulate, um, I guess, the point that you were making. And it, I mean, I think to us, actually, what we were just talking about, you know, you, you mentioned, um, you know, misogyny and, and the things and, and the rabbit holes that people keep kind of falling into. Um, it kind of takes us probably nicely into another article that you wrote um, quite recently. And I think you wrote it, um, it's on um, for Amalia. Um, and it's called, um, it is called The Rise of the Muslim Incel. So ideological victim blaming and its harm to Muslim men and women. Um, so again, I remember reading this near the end of last year, and obviously it just being really, really relevant. And of course, it's still, you know, even now where we are seeing a rise of certain, I mean, that, I guess part of that ideology has always, always been, has always existed, but it almost feels like it's got this momentum, um, mm. you know, particularly online. So I guess for our listeners, could you just start by explaining what exactly um, is meant by um, kind of the word, the word incel, I guess, that might be a good place to start. And then again, what, what kind of prompted you to, to want to write this piece? Yeah, so I think incel comes from the term involuntary celibate. Um, and it, and it's this, it was this movement that I, from, as, from what I understand, began in white Christian America, um, where these men felt sort of incensed by the fact that they weren't given access to women as and when, according to their own whims. Mm. And so they created this movement, which is kind of is defined by its misogyny mm. and very much online based. Um, which kind of just was just was just shamelessly misogynistic and very anti-female, and it's kind of this victim mentality of okay, the world is the world is privileging. It's, it's quite funny actually, privileges women and female rights, and men have been downtrodden, and we need to hark back to this kind of 1950s notion of masculinity, or even prior to that, like you know, a, a, an older time uh, masculinity, and it kind of has gained a lot of momentum, and it's kind of grown exponentially, kind of mainly the catalyst of that has been kind of the social media influencing sort of sector industry that has come out of, as a result um, and it's kind of found its way so they call it the manosphere it's like this online male movement and it's kind of found expression in a kind of muslim corner of the internet as well so unfortunately we've now got this kind of kind of burgeoning movement which i think is if we're being perfectly honest is is motivated by a uh, um by financial incentive. Like I think these, you know, clickbait and having this kind of media empire is an incredibly lucrative um, thing mm. now. Mm. And so you have a lot of people who would otherwise be insignificant voices being able to build really large platforms platforms for themselves simply by parroting anti-female talking points. Mm. And in particular within the Muslim community to kind of, um, to kind of adopt Islam into that into that kind of anti-female and it's interesting because it relies very heavily on false stereotypes of islam so this idea that islam is inherently misogynistic that the muslim alpha male exists in the way that they describe it to be mm. um, and what angers me about it and why i wrote about it was because it is absolutely antithetical to the prophet the tradition of our prophet in every sense of the word and if we're emulating anyone we sh- in terms of masculine ideals it should be the prophet who showed nothing but compassion and mercy towards women who was who who had no qualms about crying, who was the epitome of humanity. And we are going around following men with microphones who are claiming that they are taking us back to an Islamic tradition that never existed in the first place. Mm. So it's a real, to be perfectly honest, it's a, it's a real sore point for me. It's not something I like thinking about. It gives me a headache, literally physically thinking about it. But the reason I wrote the article is because I felt like no one else would mm. from the position that I think it needs to be written about. So I don't feel like there are conversations that I feel that we can have within our community and outside of our community. And this is a very much a, our community conversation. This is about mm-hmm. the conversations we need to be having in, in a safe space about how we navigate out of this problem that we seem to have got ourselves into. Mm-hmm. Um, and so writing in itself was a risk to me because I feel, I feel very protective over the Muslim community in terms of what we put out there and what is available to public scrutiny, because so much is scrutinized about the Muslim identity. Mm-hmm. And there are issues that I think that we need to unpack within ourselves. And so writing that was a bit of a, um, 
it, it, it was a really odd position to be in because I, nobody wants to add further criticism to the Muslim man. The Muslim man is already wholly vilified in uh, globally mm. and I didn't want to do that and I didn't want to do that to our brothers but there is a faction within the Muslim male community that I think needs to be called out mm. purely on the basis of its falsehoods and and I mean you know and, and it's such a deep and like it's such a difficult thing to discuss and it's such a difficult thing to do with sensitivity mm. with the sensitivity that it requires so my writing that was really out of a place of sheer frustration because I just felt mm. someone needs to call out the fact that not only does this movement exist but when we look at how feminism is viewed Mm. relationally like you look at feminism and it's considered this thing okay women are being um women are being women are influenced like when you look at red pill it's seen as women are creating the red pill movement rather than men are being um poorly influenced by other men in the same way that feminism is deemed women being corrupted by other women if you see what i mean mm. and i think it's this inability to see men as morally fallible that i think is really quite dangerous mm. because we shouldn't we shouldn't be propagating any view that men men aren't uh, religious equals to us because in terms of our religious and our spiritual the the same the same laws that apply to men as believers apply to women as believers so in terms of our moral and spiritual health we are absolute equals so for you to say that women are adversely influenced uh, spiritually and that men can't be is an incredibly dangerous thing to advocate i say Definitely. And I think there is, you know, I, mean, I feel that sense of, um, I guess, frustration and also almost like this idea that there's like a looming danger somewhere because mm. there's so much that's going on. And, and I think that's what's so great, the fact that you obviously wrote this article, because it was also um, this sense of no one's really saying anything like other Muslim men. I mean, there were some, of course, but when you think about um, uh, our kind of faith leaders or, you know, spiritual leaders, you know, what is going on and what, uh, you know, because it was almost for me, you know, online or wherever it was, it was the women who were speaking up. And but mm. again, you know, that's, you know, like you said, there's a risk even in that because you're probably going to get hounded by the very movement that you're, you know, kind of speaking about. And and for anybody who may be, you know, listening, you know, obviously the red pill is obviously in reference to, you know, the movie, you know, The Matrix. And that's obviously where it comes from. Um, but I guess, you know, I'm, I'm also wondering in terms of, you know, this piece in particular that, that you wrote the rise of the Muslim incel what are you kind of hoping should now kind of be happening like because it's still happening we, we you know there's all these men um who seemingly you kind of converting to Islam but still holding on to certain misogynistic views and they're just being welcomed the open arms without any sort of or sense of accountability and of course I understand there's a sense of when someone converts and and, and what obviously that means but at the same time we know that the accountability doesn't necessarily just disappear um so what do you think kind of needs to ideally happen next or is it you know one of, the, yeah. one of the beauties of Islam is like this so if you look at Sharia your public sins and your private sins are deal, dealt with in very different ways so like mm -hmm. your relationship with in insan or with with your fellow uh creation is different to the sin that you may commit in relationship to Allah so you know mm -hmm. in terms of like with with reverts we, we accept reverts irrespective of anything because what's between mm -hmm. them and Allah only Allah knows and we can only really assume that they are Muslim and that, and that comes from a prophetic tradition mm -hmm. but I think it's the public nature of it that I think as Muslims we need to be sensible and we need to take from our prophetic tradition and understand that Firstly, if you are a new revert to Islam, if we're looking at it from in a very pragmatic sense, mm -hmm. no way should we be sticking a camera or a microphone in your face on the mm -hmm. for a number of reasons. On the basis of your race, because I think essentially that's what happens. We have this kind of um mm -hmm. colonialized mindset whereas if someone from an external uh ethnicity reverts into our religion, we kind of hold them up on the basis mm -hmm. of their race alone. And I think again it's a colonized mindset. So that shouldn't happen for that reason. It shouldn't happen because those people need time and space as human beings who are accepting a new religion to to, to you know to understand that religion and embody that religion before we start putting them on platforms and taking everything that they say as like sacred mm -hmm. um so i think there's there's a number of issues and i think it just it, it really exemplifies how um like i suppose the disconnect i think we're so disconnected from our religion in a in a real sort of material and literal sense like we don't know the letter of our religion and, and this is again going back to what i was saying earlier about going back to the basics for me when i why i go back to the series because i feel like we don't know the basics of our religion mm -hmm. and oftentimes you have alhamdulillah we have a, a great you know tradition of um imams and mosques in the uk they're not perfect but i don't think we can expect anything to be but naturally those imams are of a different generation and they might not necessarily understand a the challenges of the everyday muslim on the street and b what social media 
exposure is. And so you've got this massive disconnect where you've got this kind of vacuum. We're all kind of navigating this space without any religious guidance, without any sort of um, expertise, spiritual or faith expertise at all. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why you have this kind of, you, th- this vacuum has been filled by these self-professed social media influencers who are like taking on the flag of, uh, you know, of, you know, of modern day British Muslim Islam, what it should look like, uh, ironically, according to these kind of archaic ideas that don't actually exist either in Western tradition or Islamic tradition. This idea of like a 1950s housewife, the 1950s, that was a farce. Like, you know, it, it never, that, this ideal that they're, they're harking back to doesn't exist anywhere other than in their minds. And I think it's easy to sell a false promise and it's easy to, to you know, to live in a city of nostalgia or in your dreams because then you don't have to feel deal with the real problems of the world. And that's the issue. We don't have enough people dealing with the real problems of the world. And that's why as Muslims, we are overwhelmingly I think 50% of our households are in poverty you know we have poorer outcomes in terms of our our health our housing you know and these are issues that we should be addressing as a Muslim community from a place of faith Mm. um, and not playing this not not kind of having these conversations about gender where they're not necessarily relevant or instructive I think Mm. yeah no and I think it's it's one of those things that there's so much I guess there's so much out there that we're trying to um you know like work through and um you know it's really interesting because in terms of yeah all the kind of personalities that we have to deal with and you know the online presence and um things that you've mentioned it, yeah I mean I don't know I guess it can sometimes feel overwhelming but that's why it was so important I think when you um wrote you know the the particular piece it, there was for me anyway kind of filling this gap of really trying to articulate what the issue is and the importance of you know wanting to call it out as well um so yeah, no, no. Thank you so much for sharing that. Um, so for our listeners, that was um, that is Maria Bint Rahan, and we were just talking about the rise of the Muslim incel, ideological victim blaming, and its harm to Muslim women and men. Um, and before that, we were talking um about um, Maria's piece, which was a cool girl's guide to being a Muslim mum. Um, so I hope you've really enjoyed the show because we're just coming towards an end. Um, hopefully, inshallah, it's given um a little bit of um an idea of um for Ramadan. Um, some reading that you can do, some things that you can reflect on, inshallah. Um, and please obviously do um, definitely um, order the best, whether it's an Eid gift or maybe something for um, during Ramadan. And you can also um, visit the website muswellbooks.com, which is M-U-S-W-E-L-L books.com. Thank you so much, um, Amari, for your time today. It's been an absolute joy speaking to you. And inshallah, is there anything else in the pipeline that we can now look forward to? Not at the moment, but I'm sure, um, I mean, I'm, I'm constantly publishing, I'm constantly writing. So inshallah, you'll see if you, if you follow me on either Instagram mm-hmm. or Twitter, then inshallah, you'll see my stuff come up, inshallah. Fantastic. And can you just share the, the, the social media handles? So we, sure. Yeah. So, uh, um, well, it's probably best to follow me on Instagram. I'm at Muswell Books. So it's nice and easy to remember. Fantastic. That sounds good. Okay. So um, I'll be back, inshallah, with um, a new um, new show and a different author. And we'll be um, delving more into reading as well. So we will see you then, inshallah. Assalamu alaikum. Thank you for listening to our podcast. Why not tune in to our live stream at inspirefm.org? And follow and subscribe to our social media platforms at InspireFM Luton.